today I am excited and pleased to introduce Maxine Hanks as our teacher. Having said that, I emphasize, as we always do, that dialogue encourages a variety of points of view, and the views expressed are always those of the individual authors and speakers. We did not ask, ask Maxine to represent dialogue, and certainly not to represent the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Maxine is her voice, and I am excited about that. Uh, Maxine Hanks lectures and writes on history, women's studies and theology, and Mormon studies and Christian liturgy with a focus on women's history and feminist theology. She did her bachelor's in gender studies at the University of Utah and her master's work in history at Arizona State University with additional graduate work in theology and religious studies at Harvard and other schools. She was a visiting fellow at Harvard Divinity School studying feminist theology and was a research fellow with the Utah Humanities Council. Her first book, Women and Authority Recovered Mormon Feminist History and Feminist Theology. Subsequent books include Mormon Faith in America. Maxine was one of the so-called September 6, excommunicated by the LDS Church. And Sorry, um, I choke up a little bit. This was a, a actually formative event in my own life. Uh, formative in a maybe negative way, I suppose. Uh, excommunicated by the LDS Church in 1993 for her work on Mormon feminist theology. She pursued clergy and liturgical studies in Gnostic Christianity and interfaith ministry, serving as volunteer clergy and chaplain at Holy Cross Chapel for 13 years, as well as on the Salt Lake Interfaith Council. Maxine returned to LDS Church membership in 2012 and has served in Young Women's and Relief Society and teaching Sunday school classes in her ward. An interview with Maxine was included in the spring 2019 issue of Dialogue titled LDS Women's Authority and the Temple, a feminist FAH, FAT discussion with Maxine Hanks. Before today's lesson, we will enjoy music from Hildegard von Bingen uh, to begin for the creator, performed by Emily van Avera, Sister Germaine Fritz and Richard Souther, and an opening prayer by Carrie England. Carrie was born and raised in the LDS Church, mainly in the Midwestern United States. Her bachelor's degree was in horticulture from Texas A&M. Carrie has five children from her previous marriage and gained four stepchildren when she married Mark England in February 2019, a wedding that I understand Maxine Hanks performed. She finds joy in the gifts of the earth and as an intuitive empath assisting others with their healing processes. We will now enjoy the music from Hildegard von Bingen and an opening prayer. Uh, then Maxine, the floor is yours. Gracious Father, we are grateful to be here in thy presence and in the presence of our Heavenly Mother, seated with our Savior and friend, our brother, and so many others who have come to be edified today. We are grateful for this gathering and for the opportunity to hear Maxine speak and we are so grateful for her knowledge and her experience for her power and her light we ask you to bless her with holy angels to attend her and guide her words give her the insight that she needs and help her to share that with us please allow us to receive it help us to open our hearts and our minds and our bodies to the information that we need 
within ourselves and our own lives to um, find answers and healing and be called to um, action. We are grateful so much for the blessings that we enjoy. Please help us as we navigate the divisiveness of the world today that we might be able to do so with love. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Should I go ahead and start? Can you hear me okay? Is my sound coming through okay? Maxine, your sound is good. I can see you and hear you, and the floor is yours. Yes. <laughs> thank you, Chris and uh, Rebecca, and thank you, Harry, for that beautiful prayer. <clears throat> you know, I, when I think of Sunday school, and I, I often teach, uh, well, I taught gospel principles in my ward for about two years as a ward missionary, but when I think about Sunday school, I think of it as a place where our souls are gathered uh, to seek insight, new insights from scripture and new inspiration from God. And I love scripture. I'm kind of a scriptural glutton. I love every kind of scripture from every tradition. Um, and, and so I love LDS tradition because of all of the scriptures that we have. Um, when I thought about exploring the text today uh, of Alma, um, 38 to 42, I, I thought that what I really needed to do was to apply some of the interpretive frameworks that I tend to use. I have a background in history and also feminist theory, women's studies, and ministry. And so I use all of those frameworks when I approach scripture. I use historical critical, and I use feminist biblical interpretation, and I use a, a spiritual interpretation. Um, I also use the, the religious interpretation of my faith, LDS faith. Um, so I don't know if you want to pop up that first slide where I outline. Do you have the slides, I guess, Chris, or does Mike have those? No, maybe not. Oh, wait, is that it? Just click on the, the yeah, that's it. I don't know if you want to maximize it. Uh, the next screen, go ahead and grab the next one. Yeah, okay, great. These are just really quick uh, cursory descriptions of a historical critical reading, which um, in a historical critical reading of scripture, the, the text is located in history and in literature. Um, and we locate who was the author, who was the audience, when were they writing, why were they writing, what were they writing. And so I look a little bit at Joseph Smith as translator and the Book of Mormon is both ancient and modern. Um, I will also kind of look at this text, Alma 39 to 42, from a religious theological reading from the LDS uh, faith, how the, the church or the Sunday school lesson that you're, you usually get at Sunday school class would look at the text. Then I want to look at a few elements from a feminist biblical interpretation approach. And then last, I want to look at it from a kind of a personal spiritual approach. So let's see, go ahead and click, I guess, on the next the historical critical. Okay. Um, first off, um, I, I tend to see the Book of Mormon as both his, um, a 19th century production and an ancient text, not one or the other. It um, has very strong elements of both. It produced in the 19th century. In fact, Joseph Smith was translating Alma um, 
in April of 1829. And Alma is right at the point of the text when Joseph Smith really gets rolling with resuming the work of translation. There was a gap of about eight or nine months where Joseph, of, of course, had begun the translation of the Book of Mormon in, um, in April of 1828 and had translated really the first third or almost half of the book, which was lost by Martin Harris. So there's this long gap where he's not translating and then he resumes again the next year in 1829 with Emma working as the scribe. And then Oliver shows up the first week of April, first part of April, and he and Joseph really get rolling. And they, they uh, Joseph translates the entire Book of Mormon, including where he had picking up where he'd left off and the new replacement text to replace what the text that had been lost, the 116 pages. So all of this is done in a matter of three months in April, May, and June, finishing in June. So he's translating Alma in April of 1829. And Alma, uh, well, from a historical critical perspective, we would, we would call Joseph the author and the prophets who he's translating as the inscribed authors. Um, and of course, from a religious context, we would view the prophets, Alma, Nephi, Mosiah as, uh, the authors and Joseph as the inscribed author. So just the reverse. Um, but I think it's important to note that the Book of Mormon, even though it was translated and produced in, in 1829 by Joseph Smith, it also bears many qualities and characteristics of an ancient text, an ancient biblical text. Um, it does, I will say the Book of Mormon, obviously, as, as is the case with any scriptural work, um, it reflects the personality, the times, the relationships, the life, the views, the revelations of Joseph Smith himself. So we can clearly see Joseph in the text, which is actually one of the strong evidences that Joseph did not borrow the, the book, did not uh, steal it or plagiarize it from anyone else. This is a text authentically translated, received, revealed to Joseph Smith, because he himself is the receiver, the translator, is, his views, his life is present in the text all the way through. And, and again, this, you would expect this with any revealed or received scriptural text. The scribal receiver is always present in the text. But the text also reflects ancient biblical themes. We have biblical figures, texts, and, and concepts that appear. I, I tend to look at the Book of Mormon as, a, um, as both a midrash and a hermeneutic of the Bible. I look at it as a midrash because it, it tells a missing story from the Bible about a group of, of people um, who were missing from the, the biblical um, text, the Old Testament, Lehi and his family. But also, it's an interpretive lens of the Bible. So the Book of Mormon is a very sophisticated, complex, intertextual uh, commentary or, or uh, intertext with the Book of Mormon, or with the Bible, sorry. Um, it, it illuminates our biblical text. It illuminates the Old Testament. It, and it explains and elaborates uh, many themes that are in the Old Testament in very complex ways. So the Book of Mormon interfaces with the Old Testament and with the Bible in very complex ways. Okay, so Alma is really, as you know, 
and again, I'm kind of looking at this from a historical critical perspective. Who is Alma? The, the book of Alma really deals with the ministry of Alma the Younger. And uh, Alma the Younger is interesting in the Book of Mormon text because he's a strong echo of the Apostle Paul in New, the New Testament. Alma the Younger goes through uh, a conversion, a dramatic conversion, just like Saul uh, in, in the New Testament in the Book of Acts becomes Paul the Apostle. Alma the Younger was rebellious. He was, um, he was an enemy of the church. He was going about to destroy the church along with the four sons of Mosiah. And then he has this traumatic experience where an angelic being appears to him and he, he falls to the ground and he's, he's struck dumb and, uh, by the experience and he has to be carried away and, and can't uh, function, can't speak for three days, just exactly like um, Saul who becomes Paul in the New Testament. So the very strong echo um, there between Alma the Younger and, and Paul. Um, there's also, I just want to mention a couple of echoes before I go into the religious reading. Um, there's a very strong echo, well, in, in this text of, uh, particularly of Alma 39 to 42, this particular, uh, these chapters focus on the narrative of Alma the Younger's um, teachings and testimony and, and preaching and commandments to his son, Corianton. Alma the Younger, of course, after his conversion, becomes a great leader in the church, a high priest of the church, and very influential. And so this, this part of Alma, from Alma 39 to 42, it follows um, 37 and 38, where Alma is preaching to his three sons. And 39 to 42, Alma is preaching to Corianton, who is the bad son, the rebellious son, who is much like Alma himself. Um, in many ways. There's an echo, a strong echo in Alma's preaching to his son Corianton that we, is so similar to what we see in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Um, there's a beautiful passage in Proverbs 7, 1 to 3 that says, my son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And as we get into the text in this next section, you'll see how Alma's teachings to his son are, are quite similar to this passage that we find in Proverbs. So that's another echo, a Book of Mormon echo of, of the Bible. Um, I also sort of sense an echo when, when, I, when I read these, these chapters with uh, Alma trying to, to teach and inspire his son, Corianton, I, I almost sense an echo in Joseph Smith's own life with Joseph Sr. and Joseph Jr. Um, Joseph Sr. Uh, very much was, was an independent, religious, spiritual person who was not a joiner of, of any particular congregation or church. And he was, I think, teaching and urging his son, Joseph Smith Jr., to seek for true primitive Christianity and the heavenly church rather than... Um, follow any particular denomination. And so I almost hear an echo of Joseph Sr. and Joseph Jr. in these passages of Alma teaching Corianton. <clears throat> There's another important echo in here that I'll dive into in the feminist section. The, the, the character of Isabel. We have a woman who shows up 
in these three chapters, Isabel the Harlot. And she's actually an echo of Jezebel in, in uh, the Book of Kings. But it's interesting because although she's an echo in many ways, they're very different. And actually considering Isabel as an echo of Jezebel in, in the Book of Kings in the Old Testament complicates and actually illuminates the possibilities for Isabel. Um, because Isabel in the Book of Mormon in, in um, chapter 39 is a harlot who draws men away. Jezebel in the Old Testament is actually a Phoenician princess and sh she marries the king, uh, King Ahab in the Book of Kings chapter 16, and she institutes worship of Baal and Asherah in Israel. And she also has the, the prophets of Yahweh killed and disposed of. So she's actually a very rebellious uh, figure uh, and in some ways seen as evil. Uh, she's also though a priestess of Asherah, which is really interesting. This is Jezebel. And um, she's also a symbol of clashing communities, the Canaanite and the Israelite communities. So Jezebel, um, as, as a figure who might relate in some way, or at least be echoed in Isabel uh, in, in Alma 39 is an interesting comparison that we'll dive into during the feminist um, theology section. So a question I would suggest thinking about as we move on to the next section is, how do you experience the Book of Mormon and particularly um, these, these three or four books in Alma as both a 19th century modern text and also an ancient biblical text? How do you, how do you experience both of those dimensions of the book? Okay, slide number two, the, or the next slide, sorry. The religious um, theological interpretation. I'll just put that up there. Great. So for a religious theological reading of the text, which is what we'll do next, and um, this is where we read it within a particular religious tradition and its theology and doctrinal framework, which is LDS. And so we'll be talking about Alma the Younger's teachings to his son Corianton and uh, Isabel, and also Sin and Redemption. So the context then in this religious reading is the first century, about first century BC. Mm -hmm. Alma is mm -hmm. reportedly writing and teaching um, in about 75 BC. And he's teaching his three sons. Uh, and so chapter 37, um, 38 and 39, each one of those is, is a teaching specifically to each of his three sons. <clears throat> um, Alma, of course, like I said, uh, Alma the Younger is, a, is the high priest over the church. And when he was young, he had been very wicked and, and uh, idolatrous, and he stole away the hearts of people, and he was very... Um, he was very articulate. He was, he was very good with using words and flattery to lead people away. He was contrary to the commandments and he created much dissension among the people. But then, as we know, Alma the Younger had a conversion and, and repented, came back uh, to lead the church. So these teachings to his three sons, in Alma 37, he's teaching Helaman, in Alma 38, he's teaching Shiblon, and in Alma 39, he's teaching Corianton. And um, 
again, here, Alma is the author, would be seen as the author, and his audience is his son. But the inscribed author would be the translator, Joseph Smith, but also the editor, Mormon, who edits this entire collection. And the inscribed audience would be the future people who will be reading the text, us today. So we are his, his inscribed audience, but his, his immediate audience is his son. Um, would someone like to read this next slide, Alma 39, uh, verses 3 through 6? Whoops. I'll go ahead and read it. Thou didst do that which was grievous unto me, for thou didst forsake the ministry and did go over into the land of Siron among the borders of the Lamanites after the harlot Isabel. Yea, she did steal away the hearts of many, but this was no excuse for thee, my son. Thou shouldst have tended to the ministry wherewith thou was entrusted. Know ye not, my son, that these things are an abomination in the sight of the Lord? Yea, most abominable above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood or denying the Holy Ghost. For behold, if ye deny the Holy Ghost when it once has had place in you, and ye know that ye deny it, behold, this is a sin which is unpardonable. Yea, and whoever murdereth against the light and knowledge of God, it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. Thank you, Chris. You know, uh, I just wanted to mention, too, another quick echo back to Jezebel. Uh, Isabel is from the land of Siron, and Jezebel was from the land of Sidon, which is kind of interesting. Also, I like the, the term Siron. It's, it's quite similar to siren, S-I-R-E-N, like the, the female sirens who lure men away. Um, what I find interesting in these passages that I want to tease out is that in looking at Corianton's sin, what was his sin? There are a couple of different possible interpretations here. Was his sin sexual or was it spiritual? I would say it was both. Um, he's accused of forsaking his ministry and also having a relationship with a harlot and denying the Holy Ghost. So his sin is not just a, a sexual wandering off to Harlotville. It's, it's a spiritual departure. It's forsaking his ministry and denying the Holy Ghost. And that's actually what I read in this, this text as being more the issue. It's, it's less about uh, Isabel and more about his faithfulness to God. That, that goes wrong here. Um, sexual sin is described as an abomination, but denying the Holy Ghost is described as unforgivable. So, um, and the sin is that it led away your heart from God. So I think that's interesting. Sin is the mind and the heart turning away from God, while redemption is a return to your spiritual relationship with God. I think oftentimes, the focus in this text, particularly in Mormon church classes, has been the evil harlot and the sin as sexual. But the deeper message I read here in the religious theological reading is that the sin is turning away from God much more than uh, who Corianton spent his, his night with. Um, the father and son here are alike in their gifts and their sins. The father and son both were rebellious when they were young, turned away from God, and came back because later um, Corianton does return and repent and resume his ministry. Here I see the father and son working together in mutual redemptive 
um, process. Alma has empathy, love, and mercy for Corianton in spite of his sin. And I think this is really important. Um, he has empathy for Corianton due to his own sins, his own failings, and his own tendency to be like his son when he was young. And I think he understands that the real issue is more about his spiritual condition. I think um, this is an important model for us as members of the church, as lay ministers of the church, to be empathetic and understanding of other people and their failings and mistakes and sins and problems. And um, sins don't make a person bad or all bad. Uh, sins and mistakes help us learn and grow. They stretch us and make us more than who we were before. We learn. And so I think that there's a lesson here in how God loves us and embraces us in spite of our mistakes and our failings and works with us. Okay, who would like to read the next passage, uh, 41 and 42, verses 41 and 42? So I'll, I'll Go ahead. That. You want to bring that up? Next slide. Alma 39, 11 through 16. Oh, no, no, 41. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> and it is requisite with the justice of God that men should be judged according to their works and the desires of their hearts. Therefore, my son, see that you are merciful unto your brethren. Deal justly. You shall have mercy restored unto you. You shall have justice restored unto you. For that which ye do send out shall return unto you again. God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a just God and a merciful God also. For behold, justice exerciseth all his demands, and also mercy claimeth all which is her own. Do you suppose that mercy can rob justice? Nay, not one whit. If so, God would cease to be God. Thank you, Rebecca. You know, in this, in this discourse about justice and mercy and the necessity of both of them, there are some deeply profound ideas. I also like the way justice is cast as male and mercy as female. That's very Kabbalistic. Um, you, you see justice and mercy as masculine and feminine in, in the Kabbalah. Uh, but the balance of the two that, that we have to have both um, is so important here because we are creatures of duality and paradox. We are creatures of bad and good, light and dark, opposites. And a very wise God understands this and knows that we need both justice and mercy to deal with the whole person. Um, God has mercy for us in, in our bad and good duality. And Christ's atonement is the way to reconciliation. The atonement reconciles our, our humanity and our divinity, our good, our bad, our mistakes, our inspiration. It reconciles the two. And it reconciles the two sides of us. It makes us whole. Because I think there's a deeper message here in accepting our whole self, having mercy and justice for ourselves, and compassion for ourselves. In our, in our own mistakes and our own sins. So in, in this discourse of Alma to his son, he's showing tremendous compassion and mercy for the mistakes and the sins and recognizing that those are going to work a redemption in his son and that the two work together. 
So I think it's important here because it doesn't uh, villainize or cast out or deny or avoid sin and mistakes. It brings, it brings sin together with faithfulness as partners, paradoxical partners in our human nature, our human condition, and how we work out um, our relationship with God and, and our, our identity and our growth as human beings over the course of our lives. You get to see how both Alma and Corianton work through all, all sides of themselves and their journey so that the whole journey is accepted and, and discussed and valued. Um, and I think that's important. I'm going to come back around to that at the end. So a question I would ask you to think about is, how do you view justice and mercy? How do you view sin and redemption? And I don't know if you want to um, pause here for a question or two before we move to the last two sections. What do you think, Rebecca? Are there any, if there are no burning questions, I'll just keep going because we may have some questions at the end. Yeah, I think we have a um, couple of uh, questions, comments that um, I'd love to hear you talk about. Um, one was um, an observation that the phrase, my son, is used 28 times. Um, and maybe you can speak to that. What do you make of that? How does this fit with how you're thinking about these scriptures? Um, and another question, um, what would Corianton extending mercy and justice to Isabel look like? Mm. Those are great questions. I actually posed that very question in the next section, the feminist reading. That's where I posed that. And so I'll talk about that then. Uh, that's my big question, actually, in that section. Um, the father and son, you know, it, it, it clearly tells us that this is a, a discourse, uh, a preaching to his son. And, and for me, again, that really highlights what I was saying earlier about the father and the son as, as partners, redemptive partners in this process, both sinners, spectacular sinners, and spectacular leaders of the church, you know, both. And so the father and son are, are a team. They work together, much like God the Father is with us. Um, and so I, I, I hear an echo of, our father in heaven talking to us as his children, my daughter, my son, my children. And it's a very tender, intimate uh, expression. And I, and I think it, it really highlights our, the interdependence of, of redemption. As Joseph Smith taught so beautifully, we, we are redeemed through relationship. Any other? Burning questions before we move on to the feminist biblical interpretation? My favorite part. Should I move on? Let's do it. Okay. So let's do let's look at the slide about the feminist reading. Um, so in feminist biblical interpretation are what Elizabeth Schusler Forenza lovingly calls FBI. I studied with her at Harvard and, and we had a great time. Elizabeth came up with dozens and dozens of feminist hermeneutics, uh, different ways of reading a text from a feminist lens. She wrote books and books and books about all these feminist um, readings. But one thing we look at is how male perspective frames the text and how women are constructed in that text. 
And I'm also going to talk a little bit about women in the Book of Mormon and six prominent female figures, one of whom is Isabel. And then I want to reframe Isabel as the other. Um, it's in, I think, so I want to focus a lot on, on women, but also Isabel in this section um, and see her in some different ways. Isabel is one of only six women who are named by name in the Book of Mormon. So that puts her in a pretty exclusive category. So I think she's important for a whole bunch of reasons. Isabel is, it says in Alma 39, three and four, Isabel the harlot who stole the hearts of many, including, um, oh, whoops, I lost it. Anyway, who stole the hearts of many. And Alma goes on to tell his son, you know, that he recognizes that, that, um, that she was extremely seductive and, and that that was a big factor, but that didn't excuse the fact that, that he went after her. Um, I think first to put Isabel in context of women in the Book of Mormon, we have six women named uh, in the Book of Mormon, three who are Old Testament figures who show up in the Book of Mormon, again, with that intertextual relationship between the Book of Mormon and the Old Testament, and three who are Book of Mormon figures, ancient American figures in the text. So um, it's interesting with these, these women that we only have six who are named. One of my favorite treatments of women in the Book of Mormon has always been the section in the Encyclopedia of Mormon, Mormonism, the, the chapter or section that was written by Camille Williams, my old colleague from BYU, and Donna Lee Bowen. Their discussion of women in the Book of Mormon in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism is actually one of the best I've ever seen. It's, I still go to that. I still, I still use it. Um, but what, I want, what they say and what I want to say is that there's far more to these women than what we seem to think there is, uh, just from an obvious surface reading. Each one of these figures suggests more. And even though the Book of Mormon tends to suggest that men held all the leadership positions, that's not really true. These women hold prominent positions and there are aspects of their religious position and authority that do kind of um, seep through the text in places. Um, we have a lot of other women who are not named, you know, um, who are important as well, like Nephi's wife and King Lamoni's wife, the queen, and even wisdom herself is described as the divine feminine in the Book of Mormon in at least one passage. But of these six women, we have the, the three from the Book of Mormon who are ancient American figures are Sariah, the wife of Lehi, who is the mother of the nation of peoples, and Abish, who is the godly servant to King Lamoni and, and his wife, the queen. Um, and she's a witness. She's, she awakens the household who has fallen unconscious when they go through this experience of hearing the gospel, they all fall to the ground unconscious. And Abish is the one who touches them through her touch. She awakens uh, the queen, actually, who, who, who uh, is awakened. And then the queen then touches the king and awakens the king. And there's a very powerful message there about the spiritual power that Abish and also the queen draw upon. It's almost evocative of a priesthood ritual of, of awakening or resurrection or healing. Um, it's a very powerful image. And um, Abish is a redemptive figure um, also who, who launches a great conversion among the Lamanites. Um, and then we get to Isabel. 
so we have these two very positive figures, Soraya, who, who actually exercises a fair amount of authority, if you read deeply in the text, um, along with, with Lehi and with the family, uh, and then Abish. These two very positive, powerful female figures are counterbalanced by Isabel, who is a negative figure. She's an impure outsider from the land of Siron. And she's a sinful woman who breaks the commandments of God, a harlot. Um, and I'll get into her a little bit more in a minute. But along with these three figures, we have three biblical uh, women who are named in the text. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is also an intercessor who converts, who, who is um, the mother of a new spiritual kingdom. There's a little bit of a parallel there with, with Abish as sort of mothering a new spiritual kingdom. Abish sort of facilitates this, the whole kingdom of Lamoni to, to, to come into this faith. Then we have um, Sarah, Abraham's wife, who is the mother of, of the nation of peoples. So she's kind of parallel with Sariah. And then we have Eve. So these are the three biblical figures mentioned in the Book of Mormon, Sarah, Abraham's wife, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Eve, who kind of parallels Isabel because she's a woman who leads a man to break God's commandments. And there's a kind of actual positive result that ends in some redemption and salvation. So I see a kind of parallel there between the three um, Book of Mormon female figures and the three biblical female figures. Isabel could be seen as kind of uh, an echo of Eve um, because she leads Corianton to break con God's commandments, like uh, Eve led Adam to break God's commandments. And there's a kind of a sexual implication there. And yet um, there's a positive result, a redemptive result for Adam and for Corianton. So Isabel, who is she? I mean, we don't know anything about her. That's it. We're only told she's a harlot from the land of Siren the sirens. Um, and if we look at her both literally in the text and symbolically in the text, I think we can read her as both bad and good. Um, she does steal away the hearts of many, and she's described as a vain or a foolish thing, those wicked harlots. So it evokes the notion of a bad woman who lures men astray to sin and, um, and away from the church and the community. Um, and yet she's also, as, as a transgressive female, she's also an agent of wisdom and knowledge because like Eve, she's, she's kind of a rite of passage for Corianton to venture into his own failings and sins and um, to learn about redemption from his father and to learn how to, to participate in redemption and repentance. And so she's kind of a, a, a a facilitative figure, a female figure at the center of a theological story or narrative of sin and redemption. And, and so I can, I can read her as a pivotal figure too, like Eve in some ways. But what was her backstory? Her entire story is missing. Um, we, is she, we wonder, I, I wonder, is she really a harlot? That's what she's called by um, Alma. But what was she doing? I mean, maybe it was the only way she could survive. Maybe she was a good person. Uh, maybe she had children she had to take care of. I mean, we, we don't know. Um, 
And if she was anything like Jezebel, she might have been a, a priestess to uh, Asherah. Who knows? <laughs> a priestess to an exiled goddess. Sometimes the, the notion of a harlot or, or a sexual role can be connected to, oftentimes uh, by male figures, they will connect a woman to, to that negative image if she was simply part of a, a priestess um, set uh, for a particular goddess, particularly in the ancient world. Um, sometimes the, the, the goddesses and the priestesses to the goddesses are portrayed in very negative terms. She also symbolizes two different communities at odds with each other, the, the other, the, the, the community outside, the non-Christian, the non-converted community over in Siren, and um, versus the community that receives the gospel and is Christian or pre-Christian. And so she's, she's a symbol of, of the, the other, the outsider, the one who is different, not part of our community. Um, it's interesting, and this came up earlier in the question, but it's interesting. My big question here is, um, if Alma and God have compassion and empathy for Corianton and his sins, why not for Isabel and hers? This is a huge uh, sexist theological problem in this, in this text, that we see all of this compassion and empathy for Corianton and his sins, but we don't see any for Isabel. And so there's a way in which this is a sexist narrative because it blames the woman um, as the seducer and as the cause of male sexual activity. It blames her for drawing him into sin. And yet I have to say, it, not totally. It doesn't, it, it's not totally sexist because she's mentioned in one or two lines, the bulk of the text is blaming Corianton for his own failings and his own sins. So it, it actually puts the responsibility for his choices and his um, sexual indiscretions on him. And I think that's important. It's, it's a very strong message that he himself is responsible for his uh, relationships with women and what might go wrong. Um, in a feminist reading, I would have compassion for Isabel and want to know who she is. I would want a midrash of her story. I would want someone to fill in and write her story. And so my question for you is, how do you view Isabel? Any comments before we move on to the last section? Should I move on, Rebecca? Okay, I can't hear you, Chris. Okay, spiritual reading. I call this last reading a spiritual reading, uh, a hermeneutic of spiritual experience or reading by the spirit. When we have a personal spiritual experience with the text, when we experience God or the spirit speaking to you personally through the text, I sometimes call that a hermeneutic of vision or a hermeneutic of gnosis or hermeneutic of mystery. There's a way in which there's a, there's a level or dimension of scripture because scripture really is designed to give us uh, a spiritual experience and, and a sense of connection to God. Um, and, and, and scripture 
Uh, scripture is a unique genre because it's not only narrative, literary narrative and heroic epic, it's also testimony. It's also witnessing of the reality of God and the role of, of God in our lives, that God is an active force in history and in our lives. And I love scripture for that reason. It's probably my favorite genre of literature because it combines um, narrative with uh, spirituality or spiritual experience. Um, the Holy Ghost is said to bring all things to our remembrance. The New Testament tells us that the Holy Ghost will bring all things to our remembrance, which means that it's a supernatural power spanning space and time. It actually can uh, escape the postmodern problem of the past or the author being dead. The fact that the, the notion that we can't access the past, really, we can't access what past authors and people were feeling or experiencing. So postmodernists will tell, will tell us that the author is dead and therefore there is only reader interpretation of the text. There's only you in the text. You can't really access the author. But I think mysticism and the Holy Ghost help us escape that gap and help to bridge that gap so that the author isn't totally dead. There's a resonance of the author in the text because when the prophet or visionary or seer has a spiritual experience, it's captured in the text. That's what scripture is. That's what makes scripture different from historical reportage or historical narrative. Scripture is the capturing of an experience of the divine, an aha moment of spiritual experience in a text, which on some level preserves it so that when the reader encounters it, it's possible that the spiritual experience captured in that text triggers or awakens the reader's own soul or spirit to recognize and resonate with the spiritual experience that was somehow captured in that text. Um, so there's a way in which when reading scripture, the author is whoever wrote it down, but the inscribed author is the Holy Ghost or God speaking through the, the text, speaking through the, the writer who wrote it. And um, the reader is you, but the inscribed reader is your own spirit, your own light, intelligence, and truth that will recognize a deeper spiritual light within the text. When I think of um, the, the, the notion of the spirit speaking to you through the text, Sometimes the text itself seems to hold a spiritual resonance of that writer's experience, but sometimes the spirit totally bypasses the text and just speaks to you directly. Um, when I think of the injunction at the very end of the Book of Mormon in Moroni 10.4, that we should ask God if these things are not true, and if we ask with a sincere heart, having faith in Christ, he, God, will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. This describes a spiritual hermeneutic or a hermeneutic of what I call gnosis. It describes the experience of, of a spiritual level of truth, a spiritual truth. And what kind of truth is it that the Holy Ghost will bear witness of? Which truth is it? I tend to see it as spiritual truths rather than historical truths. 
the promise in the Book of Mormon I see as a promise that the Holy Ghost will bring things to your remembrance and your knowledge. The spiritual truths inhabiting the Book of Mormon, not really historical moments of when something happened and what a person's name was and whether it was in Central America or Mexico or, or uh, the Midwest near the Hill Cumorah. <laughs> I don't see that spiritual promise as, as promising us anything about historical truths. I see it as promising us that the spiritual truths inhabiting the text will be communicated to our own spirit. Um, but that's just my interpretation of that. Um, there were a few spiritual truths in these chapters of Alma 38 to 42, 39 to 42, that kind of struck me as I read them. And the spiritual um, reading that I experienced personally when I was reading at this time in preparation for this lesson. So I wanted to share just a couple of those. Can I have someone read the next slide um, of Alma 43 uh, and 11? I think I'm on. Uh, Alma 43 and 11. I unfold unto you a mystery. Nevertheless, there are many mysteries which are kept that no one knoweth them save God himself. Behold, it has been made known unto me by an angel that the spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. Thanks, Chris. You know, when I read it this time, these two passages wow. really, really jumped out at me in a spiritual way. And my, my own spirit resonated with those passages that I was reading spiritual truth, something that is spiritually true, that will hold true um, for us. And those were actually my two favorite passages of, of uh, chapter 40. I wasn't as wild about some of the other passages in chapter 40. Those were the two that really resonated for me. And, and they, they spoke truth to my soul. And I felt the spiritual truth of those passages personally. Um, another spiritual truth that emanated from the text for me in this, this reading this time was God's compassion for our journey, for the whole journey, our mistakes, our failings and our moments of inspiration and reconciliation with God. Um, and and I, I sort of sense that, that within the text, there are two scenarios there that we can draw out. One scenario is that there's a higher purpose for our mistakes and our sins, because we will learn and we will grow and we will become more than we were. So sins and mistakes are not all bad. But there's another um, scenario that I, I saw in the text. Um, that there's a higher purpose for sins or mistakes or errors or disobedience that may not be sins. It may, they may actually be things that other people see as wrong or bad that maybe aren't wrong or bad, that maybe we were led to make a certain decision that was actually inspired and was good, but other people saw it as a bad thing, a mistake or a sin. So there's another dimension of the notion of sin there. Um, There are times when our choices go against what others view as right or good. And, uh, and yet our choice may be inspired by God. God may be leading us in our path to make a choice um, that, that others will find uh, to be sinful or wrong. 
but it may not be. Um, I, of course, think of this personally. I was reflecting back on my own path as I was reading these chapters. Um, in 1993, I was seen as a rebel and a sinner, and I, was, I became an outsider. I became the other when I was excommunicated for recovering and publishing our feminist history and our feminist theology in Mormonism. At that time, it was seen as dangerous and sinful. And um, I, was, I was feared and loathed and <laughs> seen as a bad person by many church members and leaders. In fact, I had friends whose parents um, were, saw me as this really negative figure. They were afraid that I was going to lead their family members astray. And so I was really seen as a, a bad woman who was leading people astray. And yet um, I felt very inspired to, to do that work and to hold my ground and to attest to the history and theology that I saw as true and empowering and good in our LDS tradition. And so I was thinking about that as an example of, of how uh, not all sin may be sin. There may be some um, disobedient moves that are actually inspired and serve a higher purpose. And, um, and so I stand by those decisions and that work and I, and I have stood by that, I've never backed down. At the same time, um, it was very important for me to also see that my mistakes, I did make some mistakes. There were some things I would have done differently. Uh, I would have seen LDS church leaders as my brothers rather than seeing them as clueless guys who were the, somehow the enemy. <laughs> I really had to awaken to understand that they are my brothers and that I love them and that we're all working together like Alma and Corianton and that, uh, I guess in some ways I identify a little bit with both um, Alma the Elder and Alma the Younger and Corianton in some ways um, as both uh, a rebel and perhaps persecuted sometimes to your faith, but at the same time returning to your faith to want to help heal the community and to heal from mistakes that we've made with each other and harms that we've done to each other. And so, um, that was sort of the final spiritual reading that I got when I was reading through it this time that I wanted to share. And so my question for you is, what spiritual experience or reading do you find in these passages? And in what ways have you found the notion of sin um, to be both redemptive and sometimes relative in your own path? Have you found your own path to be seen sometimes as wrong or sinful? And perhaps it turned out to be inspired or at least right for you. So I will stop there and turn that question over and see if anybody else has any questions. I'm trying to give people a few minutes. With your last question, Maxine, we found as you went on, a whole rich conversation ensued. Um, and I think it's just a matter of uh, time and sequence where we, where people have to write comments in, in, a, in a chat room, which is not, the, not working in quite the sequence. Um, so as, as we wait here, I'll just reflect. I, first of all, I so much appreciate you reflecting on your own spiritual experience, that is, um, or reading, um, because I was personally affected by those um, 
excommunications, I, it, it touches me. And, I, and, and others have mentioned that in the chat as well. Uh, for the, for in answer to your question or in responding, and this is me personally um, watching the chat build up, um, that it is, uh, I don't know that I'm going to have a particular example of sin, but it's the, the, the lesson that um, we should avoid the world, we should stay away from um, questions, from experiences, from being part of what is going on in the, in the outer world, if you will, are something that I heard as a child, as a teenager, and, and didn't believe. I guess I didn't take it in the way it was probably taught to me, but that my reaction, that saying, eh, maybe not, maybe the whole world is a place to be part of, to live part of, is a reflection of that. Maybe, maybe there is um, a larger world than, than simply hewing to the, um, the fence way away from the, from the cliff. Yeah, you know, that's a great, that's a great point, Chris. Um, the notion of the worldly versus the, the sacred spiritual community and, um, and crossing lines, crossing boundaries, you know, which, which lines, which boundaries do we cross? In a, in a religious community, there are boundary lines and sometimes we cross them. And uh, I found myself thinking of our LGBT brothers and sisters when I was going and when I was thinking about Korean and going over to this other community and having this relationship that's forbidden, I, I thought about our LGBT brothers and sisters. You know, what do you do about a relationship that is loving and committed and monogamous and, and beautiful and yet seen as sinful by others? That's what kept coming to me. Um, um, but also, I mean, just the struggles that people have with trying to identify with one community and yet somehow being seen as, as crossing boundaries that are controversial or inappropriate by belonging or associating with other communities. And yet Jesus, you know, set the example of, of eating and spending time with publicans and sinners. So I, I think uh, this issue of the communities at odds with each other intention is, is important. Do we, how much do we judge and how much do we avoid uh, people with a different point of view, with a, who live in a different paradigm, who live in a different reality? Uh, life for an LGBT Mormon is very, very different for those of us who are straight. It's a completely different life and experience and how can we, impose our experience onto them. I don't know if that answered or responded to what oh, you were saying. Well, and, and I appreciate it. I, um, let me share another comment out of chat here, mm -hmm. talking about uh, the, maybe the difference between transgression and sin. The transgression, one professor at BYU spoke of transgression being the crossing of one commandment in the interest of another, as in the Garden of Eden paradox. Um, let me just put that, uh, I think that's the comment, reflect. Yeah. 
it was interesting. I didn't really delve into that, but I, I was really intrigued. This time when I read the text, I noticed uh, Alma constantly telling Corianton, you need to cross yourself in this. You need to cross yourself from doing these things. And that was a really interesting image that I hadn't really thought about very much before, the notion of crossing yourself. When I think of that, you know, as a sacramental Christian for 15 years, I used to cross myself all the time at, at chapel, and which has a different meaning. Here, crossing yourself is blocking yourself, you know, forbidding yourself from crossing this boundary. To cross yourself is to, seems to be to impede yourself. And uh, it's a it's it's an interesting use of the of the word crossing yourself, which seems strange to me for what would be an Old Testament era text or time. I don't know. It was it's a very odd construction that there, there's a whole lot that comes up there, but um, I didn't I didn't really resonate to it personally. I found it to be odd, actually an odd image. Um, I noticed that someone here was asking me if I identify with Isabel, and I didn't go into, I didn't go into that as much as I had planned to, but yes, I, I identified with Isabel very much, not as a harlot, but as the outsider, the woman outside the community, the bad woman you're supposed to stay away from. Like I said, I had friends' parents who told them, don't associate with her. She's been excommunicated. She's, she's bad, you know, and I went through that for years, so yeah. And I think it's important to identify with her and um, not just identify with the good guys and the good girls. I think it's important to think about the bad girls and the ways in which we, in our lives, sometimes we are the good person and sometimes we're the bad person. And we need to, to deal with both, both, uh, both roles, I think. I'm kind of jumping around. Do you want to pick yeah, up? I appreciate it. This makes me think of an earlier comment too, um, where someone had said, uh, harlots are often uh, presented as symbols that are demonstrating of covenants with God. Um, but you've suggested a more complicated understanding of Isabel and the symbol of the harlot. Um, that also um, makes room for the kind of a fuller meaning of, of redemption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in fact, as the term is used there, as, as Joseph translated the term or, or, you know, got that image of the harlot, we don't, we don't even know if the past is inaccessible, you know, we don't even know what she was really doing or what that meant. I mean, was it prostitution? Was it uh, was that she was functioning in ways that were not appropriate for women at that time? Was she functioning outside of the normal roles? It may not have been sexual. I mean, I think we really have to complicate and problematize the, the term harlot, as well as, as her, 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 own, her own situation. What was the reality of her life, you know? Yeah, there was a suggestion in a comment about, you know, perhaps um, Corianton is smitten with, uh, you know, he's a smitten young man, and Isabel's just trying to get away from this guy who's chasing her. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's another possible reading. I also couldn't help but notice that Alma is basically saying, yeah, I know, she's gorgeous. Everybody goes after her, but that's no excuse, you know. He's kind of admitting that she's irresistible. That's kind of an interesting admission from Alma. That's yeah. very, very, 
effects. I'm also reflecting on another comment along that kind of strain of questions um, where, where perhaps there, there wasn't a, a Alma had compassion on her, but there wasn't a place for the expression of that um, in this book, or perhaps it even got filtered out either by Mormon or by Joseph Smith, um, that there, yeah. we might have a little bit of a different story, right? Oh yeah, exactly. In fact, um, I don't know how many of you have seen Don Bradley's uh, new book on his his sort of exegesis and, and hermeneutic of what he thinks was in the lost pages. And I, I went through and did editing on that text and it's it's amazing how much we are missing that there are clues and references to in the Book of Mormon. And, and in fact, Don says that perhaps one third to one half of the book was lost. The 116 pages is just the number of the replacement text in the printer's manuscript. It's not the number of the pages that was actually lost. And all of the stories, and in fact, Don has noticed clues uh, relating to women and more information about women in the lost text. So yeah, the issue of what the, edit, what the writers and editors chose to put in and, and what was lost um, lets us know that there's a great deal more to the story. <laughs> By the way, I just noticed that Robert Rees, thank you, Bob, mentions take upon you and take upon you and cross yourself suggests taking upon the cross of Christ. That that's an important and I think apparent meaning there to cross yourself, take upon yourself the cross of Christ. Um, that's a whole other uh, dimension of meaning there. There's a Maxine. There's a series that I I can't just quote them all, but let me try a gloss that are suggesting that we, as a maybe standard Sunday school lesson, use these chapters to talk about the awfulness of sexual sin and to make that really hammer that hard. Yeah. Um, and that, that has caused a lot of reflection for People listening and hearing here experiences of, of childhood and teenage years, hearing those lessons and being feeling condemned by them. Um, at the same time, a counterpoint that if we, at least as a personal experience, if you start parsing um, sexual activity as this is transgression, this is not so bad, this is that takes you down the road that may get in in the way of a repentance process it may get in the way of taking things as as, as being open to the yeah. uh, the uh, the atonement and the process that can happen and 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 make us better I, yeah i'm really glad you brought that up this is a really important part of this whole discussion that i thought about and didn't didn't know if i had time to go into but that's why I problematized that reading of, you know, is Corianton sin sexual or spiritual? Because the traditional reading in church has been a focus on sexual sin and that it's unforgivable and it's the sin next to murder and, and really, really, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, describing it as so abominable. And uh, I think it's important to, to think about this other reading that his sin was more about his spiritual condition, his relationship with God, than about his sexual indiscretion. Because I think we have focused way too much 
on sex as bad and evil and a, a sexual mistake or indiscretion or as, as somehow life ending and, and, you know, all of those horrible MIA lessons for young women about that you're ruined, you know, and you're, you're the cupcake without frosting and you can never get your frosting back, you know, things like that. And, and so I think it's really important to look deeper at what I think the real message. And, and I, I think the real message, well, I say my reading of it, is that there's a deeper message there, that it's about our relationship to God. Have we, have, have, have our minds and hearts been led away from God is I think the, the deeper message there. And I see it very clearly in the text. And I think that, you know, moving away from the specific actions as being what the sin is, and it's more about this relationship and where your heart is turned, you know, really yeah. helps us to, um, to grapple with the redemptive, what some, some people have commented are, are recognizing is the redemptive power of sin and transgression. Um, a bunch of folks are talking about their gratitude for the mistakes that they've made. Um, it's led them to greater compassion and to grow more spiritually. Um, exactly. uh, and, and I think that you've talked a lot about um, in the past, and you've mentioned it a little bit today, about you know, your gratitude for your journey um, and that um, you know, what was seen as sin and turning away um, ha has been part of a, a redemptive process of bringing you closer to, to God. Yeah, thank you, Rebecca. In fact, I, I noticed this time there were specific phrases that I had highlighted in the text and that I read describing, you know, Alma's rebellion and his, his working against the church. Specific words and phrases that were used to describe me, even right in my, my letter that I got from the church. I mean, I'm Alma, you know, <laughs> Alma the Younger at his bad face. And, um, and yet I would not be who I am. I am so grateful for that journey. And I knew at the time that it was God led, it was spirit led, that I was being led by the spirit and that what I was doing was right for me. And I've never backed down from that. I, I saw that whole experience as tr tremendously inspiring and strengthening. And, um, and I was spiritually guided through that process. And I was told by the spirit at the time of my excommunication, that this was destined this was something i had taken on a task that i had taken on to do in this life and that many people were going to learn from it and that that this was destined and i didn't know where it led i just had to follow the spirit and see where it led and i would never change a year of that time outside the church what i learned how i grew and who I became as a result, I would not be one-tenth of the person that I am if I hadn't taken that journey. And yet I am very, very grateful that when the time came, that same spirit that attended me and comforted me and guided me during the excommunication and the journey out told me it was time to come back and told me that that too was destined and that I would not complete the journey or be a whole integrated person until I came back to the community and did some healing and worked with the community to heal around what had happened for myself and for others. So, you know, the, the negative journey and the positive journey, the departure and the return, the integration of the whole journey, I think is extremely important. And I see this deeper message in the, this text of the duality of our, of our identity and our life and our journey 
and, and working with both of them and how they're reconciled by the relationship between justice and mercy that, that reconciles the, the opposites and integrates them. Maxine, that's, that's the message I would like to end on. So I'll take my role as, as calling it there, saying amen, and thank you. Um, we will, uh, thank you so much. You've blessed us with this lesson. Um, we will have another opportunity to hear the music of Hildegard von Bingen, and then a closing prayer by Jody England. Um, so that I don't interrupt in the middle, let me introduce Jody uh, as I, I would like to call her sister. Um, Jody is a writer, speaker, activist, advocate, mixed media artist living in Salt Lake City with her husband, Mike. Dialogue has been part of her life since she was a child, when she would curl up and read a book under her dad's desk um, while he was at work on creating the magazine Dialogue. This was in the late 1960s. This memory of the early days is inter intertwined with learning to be involved in social justice through the civil rights era while helping with Relief Society bazaars and road shows. Sorry, I'm moved. Uh, that had a yellow submarine theme, making paper pioneer bonnets and trekking around the block with other primary kids on July 24th, listening in on passionate discussions about church issues and history at gatherings at her parents' home. The dialogue community is a crucial part of her journey, creating a nuanced, complex, wisdom-seeking, mystical life that has deeply connected her to Mormonism. In small part, Jody's essay, Condemn Me Not, was included in the spring 2019 issue of Dialogue, and thank you for that, Jody. Um, music, prayer, thank you all. Our dear God, in all expressions of appearance, of thought, of language, and of love. We are grateful that we could be here. We are grateful, so grateful for Maxine, for her life and what she offers us. We are grateful for this opportunity to come together at a time of isolation, but feel such deep connection in this way. We are grateful for this narrative that is ours to look at and find ourselves in, to look at Alma and see the ways that we are all parents who so desperately want to shield our children from a journey that may be so similar to our own, to shield them from the things that are so similar to what we might've done that helped shaped us. And yet we are trying to keep them from possibly going through the same process. Help us to recognize that and to be generous and merciful and forgiving to our children, to our families, to our parents. We are Corianton, who is on a complex path, who is finding attractions in multiple ways that are tribe our family might not always understand. Please help us to recognize and be generous in understanding when our path does not look like those around us and yet to continue to be on that. 
We are Isabel. Help us to recognize how quickly we all are to point fingers to be the other and to fear the other. Help us to recognize how that fear can impact how we are treated. Please help us to recognize what it is like to be the one whose story is not completely known or honored, the one who is assumed to be dangerous, the one who does not fit in. Please help us to learn these things in ways that will help us to overcome the separation, the barriers, and to remember that ultimately we are all part of thee. We all come to thee. We are a part of thee now. And nothing is a barrier to thee. We are all Maxine. who so generously and courageously continues to share her journey and her path with us and is an example of someone who lets her path be directed ultimately and completely. Through inspiration, may we learn from that and appreciate her in all ways that we can. Please go with us, help us to overcome those things that take us away from thee, to see thee in each other in all ways, and to find ways to love in all the complexity, in all the challenge, in the pain and the joy. We are grateful for thee. We are grateful for the opportunity to come together in the name of our dear brother, who set such an example of being one. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Jody. Amen.